I invite you to find a Bible, uh, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Our October series begins today. What does it mean to be the people of God for the Word of God? I invite you to listen for that word today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel and the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages even began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason, I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know the one in whom I have put my trust and I'm sure that he is able to guard the deposit I have entrusted to him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Elementary biology class, uh, taught me a lot of lessons. It taught me a lesson about the dodo bird. Do you remember the dodo bird? The dodo, yes, the dodo. <laughs> the dodo bird is this, you know, exemplar of animals that are extinct. And I loved talking about the dodo bird as a pre-adolescent boy, mostly because I just loved saying the word dodo bird. I still do, dodo bird, it's a great phrase. But for the life of me, with science and evolution being what they are, advancing as they do, I, I couldn't figure out how an animal goes extinct. Like, why doesn't it just move to better food, better water, or better habitat? For me, the world was big enough that all of these animals could do just that, despite habitat loss, environmental changes, predatorial increases, you know. In the past 100 years, we have witnessed even more extinctions. The passenger pigeon, the Carolina parakeet, tiger seals, the black rhino. And we've also seen several species that have been on the brink of extinction, but they remain on the endangered list, the panda, the tiger, the snow leopard. And what we see in those cases are organizations all across the world, just about on every single continent, from all different countries, all different persuasions, neither money nor uh, logistics, language barriers stand in the way of that mission, of that focus, for every all hands on deck to help these animals avoid extinction. Well, what if I told you that some of the top researchers in religion and culture are beginning to say that Christianity is one generation away from extinction? 
That's the word they use, extinction. <laughs> One generation away, how is that even possible? I, you know, we've seen some trends in Europe where cathedrals much grander than this were once replete with, with bodies and with voices, and now they are libraries and museums. We know the numbers here in the American West. We know numbers uh, that show Protestant denominations. They're all in decline. And the more they splinter, the more they fragment, the faster, the more rapidly they decline. The facts are the facts. There's an exception, though. There's something quite profound happening in Africa and in Latin America, the Philippines. The gospel is spreading like a brush fire during a drought. It's the refining fire of the Holy Spirit, and we have to pause and ask ourselves, why the disparity between churches in decline and churches that are growing so quickly? And maybe a better question is, if with so many organizations pouring into keeping um, animals from being extinct, why not a global effort to prevent Christianity from becoming extinct? Hmm. Where are all the resources there? Well, isn't that just a wonderfully uplifting way to start a sermon this Sunday morning on World Communion Sunday? If we had to draw a master plan for saving Christianity from extinction, what would it include? What steps would you put in your master plan, you know, your plan for, for intervening? It, it's going to require more than programs that we've tried in the past. It'll require something different from anything that we've tried up to this point, no doubt. There's a gap that continues to form between where the church is and where the world is, and that space in between where the church is and where the world is is called opportunity. <laughs> it's called the mission field. It's where God's grace is already at work if we'll just show up and join the dance. That gap is the field to which we are called. Well, I started thinking about other ways to address this phenomenon in light of today's reading. And I think the first place to start, if we're writing a prescription, a plan for turning the tide on what God can do through the church in the world today, the first thing we need to note is this mentorship that is shared between Paul and Timothy. You know, I, I tell a lot of groups this all the time, and particularly youth groups, uh, college students, that we, we, all need, we all need a Paul in our life, and we all need a Timothy in our life, okay, if you want to think about it that way. We all need someone who is shaping, pouring uh, himself or herself into our lives. But we also have to have a Timothy, someone in whose life we can pour, somebody, you know, in, in their life we can make a difference. Uh, the Wesley College is doing some of that with their training, with their one-on-one -on -one attention that they're giving to uh, current pastors and future pastors. Uh, show me a growing Christian denomination, a growing uh, Christian organization. At the core of that will be a mentor program, I promise you. If you look at any of our other, other partners locally, that's My Child, Mercy House, Valiant Cross, they're all founded on mentorships. One human being making a difference in the life of another human being. Jesus did it, by the way. Paul picked it up. John Wesley founded his movement on the same principle. So there's this mentorship piece that I think could be a good prescriptive for what it means to be the people of God, for the Word of God. The second thing is to cling to our doctrinal standards and to celebrate those. In our United Methodist family, uh, we have those. They're the first two, three, four sections of our, what's called our Book of Discipline. Those doctrines cannot change, but they can change us. We say them every Sunday. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
our creedal statements. When Paul is talking to young Timothy, Pastor Timothy, whom he ordained, that's what he meant by when he said the laying on of hands, he ordained him, sent him out into ministry. Timothy all of a sudden is, he's in kind of a quandary, really. He doesn't know what to do. Paul reminds him of the faith that had been passed down through his grandmother Lois, through his mother Eunice. You have all the ingredients you need. You have the theological spine and, and the backbone that you need, Timothy. You have a liturgical faith, a creedal faith, a ground-rooted Jewish faith that focuses on God, focuses on Sabbath, keeps it holy. You know to build the rest of your week around Sabbath. You know to keep it holy. You know to be with your people and to be with your God. You know to take care of your neighbor, the widows, the orphans, the transients, the migrants. You know that our laws say that. That's the faith that Paul was saying. The pilot light is there, Timothy. We just need to fan it. We just need to fan it. And at the end of that, we ask, well, what is a Lois and Eunice kind of faith for us that needs fanning? The traditions, the generational faith that's been handed down by your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. And here we are facing such high seas and turbulence. It seems like it just never stops. What are we to do with this, this faith that we have in our possession? I brought some show and tell today. I have two very uh, meaningful items that stay very close by on my shelf in my office. There's two Bibles. The first one is, is falling apart. It's in about 16 different pieces. But it has a very special date on the inside, November 23rd, 1986. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the first Bible that my parents gave me. And it stays right there on my, my shelf with me. And they told me things like, if you'll pour it into your life, God, God's light will come on. You'll have purpose and you'll have meaning. It's a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. It is uh, the red letter King James Version because that's the language Jesus spoke, right? It's funny. Second Bible that I have, it has a different date. It's in a little better shape. Not much. But the date in this Bible is July 16th, 1989. That's the day that I walked down, that's the day I walked down an aisle and said yes to Jesus. I said, my family, the rural family from Chilton County, the, the family from Clanton, the family from all over the state, everything up until that moment had, had, had helped me arrive at that place. So I didn't walk down the, the aisle by myself. I walked down with generations behind me who had paved the way. And I said yes to Jesus. And I remember my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, telling me about this book and about that day and the baptism that would follow. She said, if you let it be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, God will bless you and you can bless others. Well, for some reason, God called me into ministry all those these years later and here I stand with a faith that I've inherited, with markers that are dated to remind me of my story. And you have the same stories in your family. You have family Bibles. You remember the great big Bibles? You write all the names and the births and the baptisms in it. I don't know if we do that anymore, but I love those big Bibles that are on coffee tables. Some of you might not have generational Christianity in your family. You know, you're brand new Christians. I know we have a lot of new Christians in our church. 
a lot of new Christians watching online in the United States, around the other side of the world this morning. What you get to do in, in response to this generational faith and inheriting these doctrines, these creeds, and this, this platform on which we stand as Christians is you get to be the champion of the first generation in your family. <laughs> you get to be Paul and Lois and Eunice for those who come behind you. The question is, what do we do with this that we've inherited? Timothy was wrestling with that. I don't know what to do is something Timothy would have said. So when we don't know what to do, we, we tend to give in to fear, or create hypotheticals, and we retreat. We go inward, or we go somewhere we feel safe. And what Paul says next is something that's so profound. What he's telling young Timothy is, I know that you know that our leader was executed. I know that you know the inner disciples are being martyred as we speak right now, skinned alive, beheaded, fed to the lions in the Colosseum. That's what they did to Christians who said Jesus Christ is Lord, right? I know, Paul says, I know that uh, you know that I'm writing you from prison as your mentor, and it's probably going to result in my own execution, my own death. But now what I need you to do is not be ashamed of the gospel that you know to be true. Because you have this wonderful foundation that you've inherited. And you need to allow Jesus Christ to do something totally new, totally radical, that involves breaking down walls and using the rubble to build bridges, that involves erasing lines and drawing the circle of love widely for people who have never been loved in their life or people who have been beat up by life. This new wideness of God's love calls Christians to go into the margins like Jesus did with the least and the last and the lost and the lonely, to which Paul would have said, yeah, it might, you might die. <laughs> you might be incarcerated. You might be ripped apart from your family, but don't be ashamed of the gospel it has called you from darkness and into marvelous light. In, in Protestant America, the least bit of, of tension, the least sign of, of struggle, and man, pff, we're ready to go. We're out. The hard work of, of Christianity, of inheriting this faith, these doctrinal moorings that we have to proclaim Christ crucified and raised to new life and empowering the church through the Holy Spirit, it takes courage to stand in the middle of all that all the tension, all the chaos, all the tumult, all the anxiety, and say, God is the one who saved and called us with the holy calling. It's not based on anything that we have done. It was based on his purpose and his grace that he gifted to the world through Jesus Christ and through the church. So do not be ashamed to testify to the goodness of Christ. Do not be ashamed to testify to the good works that Jesus did for people. We have inherited this faith steeped in tradition, just like Timothy, and our root system runs deeply, 193 years deep in this city, no doubt. Our lives have been built around this space, our faith grounded. We've witnessed thousands of human beings be baptized in these waters and become a part of the family of God. We've heard thousands of teenagers stand in front of this chancel rail and 
face their congregation and say, our families have, have gotten us up to this point, but we're ready to say yes to Jesus, and they profess faith in Christ. We've accompanied thousands of couples to this chancel, and their two lives have become one, a new family in Christ. And from this very space, from where we will take communion here in just a moment, we have accompanied thousands of members who have made a transfer from the church militant to the church triumphant. To which Paul would say, don't deviate from mission and message despite all that's going on outside. Just embrace all that has allowed you to arrive here at this point, but stay on focus with mission and message. That mission and message is going to require some loss. We don't do well with loss, but it will require some loss, the giving up of something, the dying to self. Timothy didn't want to lose his moorings. He didn't want to lose his family. He didn't want to lose his head. He didn't want to lose his life. We run the risk of losing far less. Leading through difficult seasons, it doesn't mean giving up on mission and message. All the more, we grow our way out of crises. So do not be ashamed in speaking up for the voiceless or stepping into the places where people need help. Do not be ashamed of taking on poverty and food insecurities and homelessness. It will become our new identity. Do not be ashamed. So we're preparing our hearts now to, to come forward for Holy Communion. And Christians all over the world in a 24-hour period are celebrating the sacrament of Holy Communion today. On this World Communion Sunday, I pray it's not lost on any of us that several diverse streams have fed into this moment of unity, this new relationship with Tanzania, and what God is doing through our connectional system is powerful. We get to make a difference on the other side of the world as pastor after pastor is trained up to lead people to Jesus Christ. We will not be ashamed of what Christ is doing. On this World Communion Sunday, there are, by my last count, 67 families grieving the loss of a loved one after Hurricane Ian ravaged Florida. 67 families who would give anything if they could be in church today, presenting their hands with their loved ones next to them, singing and praying together. We will not be ashamed to stand in the gap for them today. On this World Communion Sunday, there are hundreds of families without homes or without power. They too would, they would give anything to have their church back, to have their neighborhood back to be able to take some bread from this altar to some of our shut-ins today. And so today, in this moment, we will not be ashamed that Christ has called us here for a time such as this. On this World Communion Sunday, with so much going on in a denomination, we cling to the truth that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Can I get an amen? No matter what storms come, Jesus Christ is not changing. On this World Communion Sunday, as you come forward, I invite you to remember that you don't come forward alone, that you are surrounded 
by so great a cloud of witnesses, the communion of the saints, those who are cheering us on as we lean into our ancestors and then ask what's next? What next can we do as a church? Having welcomed 113 new members this year, busting at the seams with 110 youth on Sunday nights, feeding 500 people in our community each week, breaking bread with 200 brothers and sisters on Wednesday nights, families returning to in-person worship uh, each and every week, and and a reach, as I mentioned, of about 11,000 people in worship, I'd say the best is here, the best is yet to come. Do not be ashamed. Do not lose focus of mission and message. After 193 years, it may just be that God is just getting warmed up with us. What's next?